As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Now let us pray. Your word says, O Lord, that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so now as we give our attention to what you have said in your word, we realize our inability to change ourselves, to change our behavior, to change our beliefs, to do the good works that you are calling us to. And so I pray that your spirit would come, so work in our hearts, to open our eyes to see the reality of the world that you are showing us in this passage, your world, the world that you rule by your word, and also, Father, that you would change our hearts so we would take pleasure in doing your will. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we can learn much about ourselves just by observing the behavior of children. We have four who are still growing up in our house, and there are several running around here each Sunday we love to see. Children, especially in the earliest years, tend to reveal the desire of their hearts with utmost clarity, whereas we work to, you know, keep that from being revealed to anybody else. We work pretty hard at that, keeping what we really want under wraps. Uh, One clear thing we learn about ourselves from watching very young children is our sinful tendency to hang on for dear life to what we have at the same time, to never be satisfied with it. So consider the uh, introduction to property law from a toddler's perspective <laughs> that I read this week and wanted to share with you. If I like it, it's mine. If I can take it away from you, it's mine. If I had it a while ago, it's mine. If I say it is mine, it's mine. If it looks like mine, it's mine. If I say I saw it first, it's mine. If you're having fun with it, it's mine. If you lay down your toy, it's mine. If it's broken, it's yours. For many Americans today, we tend to view our own wealth in much the same way. Mine, mine, mine. And I want more, more, more. A wise man once wrote, riches and contentedness are like two buckets. While one comes up full, the other goes down empty. The Apostle Paul, back in verses 6 through 10 of chapter 6 here, addressed the danger of the love of money and not being content 
with what the Lord has provided us. He warned there that the love of money will plunge people into ruin and destruction. And now in our passage, at the very end of his letter, he wants to warn those who are rich about how they are to view their money while living a life of godliness. So we've been called to live this life of godliness throughout 1 Timothy in all things. So now we're thinking about the life of godliness for those who are rich, for those who, who have wealth. So how are we to think about and use our wealth while living before the face of the holy God who has made us his own people through the blood of his Son? Too often when it comes to our finances, uh, we, we take our cues from the world and how the fallen, sinful, and secular world handles its money. We look to them and learn from them about how we are to handle it. And if we do that, we'll probably end up using what the Lord has given us in a way that it was never intended to be used. So talk about learning from, from, from children. Maybe you have uh, purchased an expensive toy for your child or for your grandchild just to see them use that expensive toy for something completely different from what it was intended to be used for. Uh, when I was young, uh, one, one, one toy that I was very happy to receive, I don't know when, when I received it, uh, how, how old I was, but I was pretty young, was a, a, a wiffle ball bat. So uh, I still play wiffle ball, so I had one of these in, in my study. So I received one just like this when I was young um, and, and saw it, and the first thing that came to my mind when I opened this, this present up and, and saw this bat was, finally, I have a lightsaber. <laughs> finally, I've been wanting a lightsaber for years, and now I finally have one, and so I would use it as a lightsaber and beat the trees and, and take on the, 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 the empire uh, outside um, with my, my lightsaber. Um, it, it became uh, years before I realized what it was actually supposed to be. And I've really enjoyed it since then. Um, but the intended use, of course, was for a bat, and I missed out on all that joy uh, of using that wiffle ball bat as what it was intended to be and ended up uh, cracking it and denting it in all my lightsaber battles. <laughs> so if we don't understand the purpose of the resources that the Lord has given us, we will either lose what he has given us or miss out on the joys of using his gifts in the way that he intended for us to use them. So our main theme from this passage this morning at the end here of First Timothy is we are to use our riches for God's intended purposes. We have to use our riches for God's intended purposes. Now, we, we, we've made our way through the entirety of the Apostle Paul's letter to Timothy, who was serving as a pastor or a lead elder in the church at Ephesus. And let's remember that Paul is writing this letter as he indicates the very first verse of the letter as an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. So Paul was commissioned by Christ the Lord and ordained by God to speak for him. What Paul writes then are not just his words. 
They are the words of Christ Jesus. The words of the head of the church and God, who as verse 15 and then 16 uh, uh, tells us, we looked at last week, is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Paul wasn't just writing this letter for Timothy either, but also for the entire church. We we can see that in the very last word of his letter. In the final greeting there that we read, grace be with you, the, the, the you there is in the plural form in the original language. So it's, it's you all. Or, in the southern part of our country, we would say y'all. Grace be with y'all. Paul expected Timothy to have read this letter before the church and to obviously share it with other churches. For that's why our church has joined in uh, the Christian church throughout the centuries in, in reading and learning from this letter. So this is... God's word to us, Paul speaking and writing for Christ. Now in the final passage, Paul's focus is on instructing those within the congregation who are rich or had resources, how to live a life of godliness with them. So we will follow this letter or this, or this the theme here of how to use our riches for God's intended purpose under three headings this morning. The first is the one who gives riches, that's in verses 17, or just, just verse 17, the one who gives riches. Secondly, the purpose for our riches, that's verses 18 and 19. And then thirdly, the riches we must preserve or hang on to, verses 20 and 21. The one who gives riches, the purpose for our riches, and then the riches we must preserve. So first of all, verse 17, the one who gives riches. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, we are uh, seeing from First Timothy, as well as other letters to the churches in the New, the, New, the New Testament, that these early churches were made up of both the poor and the rich. The gospel was being believed and received by all kinds of people within these cities, slaves and masters, women and men, Jews and Gentiles, and the poor as well as the rich. So here Paul addresses those within the congregation who were wealthy. As for the rich in this present age, he's addressing the rich. He's saying, okay, now those of you who are considered to be rich, listen up. I'm talking to you. But Paul immediately downplays the importance of being rich with the qualifier in the present age or in this world. This is intended by Paul to to lower these riches in our esteem. Although riches seem very important and of incredible value to us, they will only be for this present age, for a short time. And they share the same nature as this present age does. That is, like this world, these riches are quickly passing away. 
Therefore, it is foolish to place any of our hope in them. Worldly wealth is simply not as important as we tend to make it out to be. Now, when I was growing up, there was a TV show that I never watched but uh, heard a lot about because it was often the butt of jokes on uh, late night uh, talk shows and and Saturday Night Live. Uh, It was called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, hosted by Robin Leach, who spoke with a very proper uh, British accent. Uh, It would showcase the extravagant and luxurious homes, clothing, yachts, private jets, and incredibly expensive cars of the rich. And what that show did for me was make it pretty clear that I and my family were not in that category at all. In fact, everybody I knew wasn't in that category and probably never would be. And so that understanding of the rich has influenced our Bible reading. When we read passages where the Bible is addressing people who are rich, maybe you have subconsciously at least thought that these verses, these warnings, well, they really don't apply to you because you would never be featured on Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. But if you own your own home, if you own at least one motor vehicle, if your home has air conditioning, if you have a college education, if you can walk into any department store or go online to Amazon and make purchases simply on credit, then you are far more wealthy than the vast majority of the world. Even if your household income is just $16,000 annually, which ranks in the bottom 10% in our country, it's still over five and a half times the average global personal income. So even if you don't feel rich by the world standards, you are, and so you can and you must Hear these words as directed towards you and your situation. Now there are two sins, two traps that the rich tend to get caught up in. It says, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. So the first uh, sin is, is pride, or a false sense of importance, being haughty, conceited, arrogant, full of yourself. When we have more than others, we tend to believe that it means that, well, it's because we're better than others. We're smarter. We have made better decisions. We have worked harder. And therefore, that's why we are more wealthy. We are more worthy of the wealth that we have and therefore more worthy of of the honor of those who aren't as wealthy. The other sin that's addressed here is one of a false sense of security. We feel secure because of our wealth. If we don't have as much wealth as we think we need, well, then we feel very insecure. We feel stressed. We're anxious. As long as we have enough in the bank account, as long as our retirement investments are showing growth, As long as our business is in the black, we feel at peace. We believe we'll be okay. We're putting our trust in ourselves 
and in what we have earned or inherited rather than in God. And the Bible warns us about this uh, as being a very, very foolish way to live. Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 6, Do not, he said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And Jesus was just re- reflecting on the wisdom of the Proverbs when he said that. For Proverbs 23, uh, verse 5 says uh, that uh, we, we, we're giving a warning there about putting our hope in riches because when your eyes light on it, it says, it is gone. For it suddenly sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. Like a little bird, you know, sitting on a fence post and as, as you walk towards it, boom, it's gone. That's how we are to think about our wealth. That's how quickly it leaves us. As one Bible scholar noted about our riches, when we think we have them in a moment, they slip out of our hands. How foolish it is then to place our hope on them. So the danger here of our wealth leading us into these two sins of a false sense of importance and a false sense of security is it can end up ruining our two greatest relationships. Our arrogance, our pride, will lead us to despise our neighbors and our self-reliance will cause us to forget God. So listen to to this warning that the Lord gave the Israelites um, as they were about to enter the promised land. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 8. So they're about to enter into the promised land. They're about to enjoy the wealth and the provision of that land that God was giving to them. Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 18. The Lord says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up, that's the pride, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand hath gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. The best way for us to not be haughty, not to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches is to daily remind ourselves that everything we have has been given to us as an undeserved gift from God. It is all grace. God is the one, as it says, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. How much of what we have in our homes has the Lord provided for us? Everything. 
everything. When we sit down at our dinner tables to enjoy another meal, like we have done every single day of our lives, how much of the food that we will eat has been provided for us by God? Everything. Everything. When you were doing your taxes and figuring up all of your income from the past year, how much of your income was provided for you by God? Everything. God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We're being warned here, we are so very tempted as sinful, idolatrous humans to worship the gifts rather than the giver, to put our hope in ourselves and what we think we can earn rather than trusting in the one who feeds the birds and clothes the lilies of the field and gives us everything to enjoy. The gifts that God gives us are meant to lead us to trust him, to depend upon him. He gives us what we need so that we will learn. We must depend upon him so that, so that we will know he loves us and that we will look to him then for our greatest need, for salvation, for salvation from our sin and our guilt to be rescued from condemnation, our, our greatest need for righteousness, that we will look to him to provide that for us. Everything that we have that's been given to us by God is meant to show us that we must look to him for everything that we need, especially for salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord, as we sung a few minutes ago. He has also richly provided us with that incredible gift, as well as through, um, uh, uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ giving us righteousness and salvation. Secondly, verses 18 and 19 then, the purpose of our riches, the purpose for our riches. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Since it is God who gives us everything we have, God then is never impressed with how much money is in our bank accounts. God is never impressed with how big our houses are or uh, how nice the resort is that we are uh, uh, going to stay in for our vacation this summer. We might be impressed with people like Warren Buffett, people like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, but God is definitely not impressed with them. What God is concerned about is what are we doing with the resources that he has provided us. God is much more concerned about how we are living, whether or not we are doing good. Those who are rich in this present age, which again includes everyone in this room, are to do good and to be rich in good works. This will again help us to fight against the temptation to be arrogant, for it means that we will be thinking of others. How can we serve others? Our attention will be taken off of ourselves and placed onto the needs of those around us. Uh, this will help us to, to build relationships with others rather than separating ourselves from them. 
doing good works for others will, will, will lead to our realizing that people that may not have as much money or resources as we actually have are actually a lot like us. They have similar needs to us. They're made in God's image as we are. They are people whom God loves. Like us, they are also sinners in need of the grace of God. We'll learn that as we serve them. As we learned from chapter 2, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So our Savior is the same Savior that they need. He is the only Savior. And so God is calling us here to do good works, to show them, and to tell them who the Savior is. The good works that are being called for here do not just consist of writing a few checks uh, out to charities or ministries who are doing the good works. That might be one way to do good works, but, but this is calling for, for more here. Verse 7 told us that God richly provides us with everything. That is, provides us with all resources that we have, our money, but also our time, our skills, our talents, our bodies, our spiritual gifts, the relationships that we have with others. We are to use everything that God has given us in order to be rich in good works. But writing checks or giving away the financial riches that we have is one way that we can use to fight against our temptation to set our hope on our riches. There may be no greater way to fight against the temptation of greed and the love of money than to give our money away. That may be a good test for us to examine our hearts. You know, how easy is it for us to give away our money in order to do good? When our young people like, like Emma tell us that she's going to, to give up her summer to serve at a Bible camp in a faraway place and help young people there to get to know Jesus and, 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 and serve them with the gospel, but that she will need financial help in order to get there and serve in that way, how willing then are we to, to hand over our money to her so that she can do that? Or when we meet a, a very young couple whom God has called to plant a church in a city in Mexico uh, where there really aren't any Bible-preaching churches around, but they are fully dependent upon the financial support of people like us, in order for them to do that work there that we're not there to do and, and raise their family at the same time, providing food for them and, and clothes and, and school and all that that, that, the, that their, their, their family needs, how easy then is it for us to, to provide them with what they need to serve the Lord there, to give away our money to them? God has given us everything to enjoy, it says. And one of the greatest ways to enjoy the wealth that he has given us is to give it away to others. Give it away to others who are doing some really good work in places uh, and for people who really need to hear the gospel. The purpose of our riches is to do good with them for the glory of God. And in this way, we will store up treasure in heaven like the shrewd manager of Jesus' parable of Luke 16, who was commended by his master for, 
for, for using the resources that he had been given in order to be welcomed by friends after he lost his job. So we are to use the resources that God has given to us in order to store up treasure for yourselves in the life to come and take hold of that which is truly life. You remember verse 7. We brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. But the good works that we do with the resources that God has given to us will go on ahead of us into eternity. God knows, God sees, and we will have much more joy in the life to come if we use what we've been given for God's intended purposes. And finally here, verses 20 and 21, the riches we must preserve. The riches we must preserve. O Timothy, Paul says, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. In Paul's final words to Timothy, he returns to his concern that he first stated at the very beginning. Timothy must guard himself and the church against the teaching or the promotion of different doctrines. That we are not uh, doctrines that were not in line with the apostolic teaching. Paul referred to them as myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. In chapter 1, verse 4, Timothy has received the most valuable resource, the greatest of riches imaginable in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of how condemned sinners can be reconciled to God through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is this good deposit that Timothy has been given. And if you are a Christian and a member of a faithful Bible-believing church, then it is the most valuable thing that you have been given as well. The gospel is a treasure that we must guard, a treasure we must, we must keep, we must, we must preserve, we must hang on to. But it's also a treasure that is meant to be given away. In fact, that is the main reason why this treasure has, uh, has been entrusted then to the church so that we can be sure to give it away and make sure we're giving away the true gospel. The only way it will do anyone any good is if what we are giving away in the message of the gospel is, in fact, the very message that the, gospel, that the uh, uh, apostles then passed on to the Christians here in 1 Timothy. The very gospel we have received from the apostles is the very gospel we must continue to pass on to others. If we give away a distorted version or a version that's been influenced by, as Timothy put, or Paul puts it, irreverent babble or contradictions, if we allow the gospel to be changed and, and shaped by the changing attitudes of our culture or the various secular philosophies like Marxism that are so dominant today, in our universities and in our government, then what we will be passing along to others will not be the gospel. It will not do anyone any good. It will instead cause them to swerve away from the faith. 
That is to turn away from the Savior, Jesus. Turn away from eternal life and the forgiveness of their sins. We can let go of our money and we can hang on loosely to our financial riches, but we must not let this go. We must preserve the gospel. We must guard the good deposit. The ways we guard the deposit of the gospel of grace are by gathering here each week to hear the gospel proclaimed, to, 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 to sing the message of the gospel to each other in our songs, to teach our children the gospel in Sunday school classes and in the Good News Club, uh, by teaching the catechism to our youth, and at least once a month to see and touch and taste the signs and symbols of the gospel in the Lord's table, which we are to do this morning. The end of the letter, we're giving this, this last greeting, this last word from Paul, grace be with you. Grace be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the grace of God, be with you. Paul's referring here to the gospel. Paul's saying here, the gospel is of grace. Your place with God is of grace. Your good works, no matter how many you can count, how many you can look back on and say, I did this, I did this, I did this. Those good works, although Paul uh, is, is calling us to live a life of good works here, those good works are not the things that earn us our place with God. It is grace. It is grace. Something that has been given to us. Again, God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He's provided us with our salvation, with the forgiveness of our sins, with the righteousness that we need before God. He has given that to us. It's by grace. And this table, partaking in the Lord's table, reminds us of that. For it is the the Lord who died for us. It was his body that was broken. It was his blood that he shed for us so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be saved, so we could stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ and be welcomed by him into his kingdom. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, we're given this wonderful verse. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you by his poverty might become rich. If you are in Christ this morning... You're rich. You're richer than you have ever, ever dreamed you ever could be. Because you have been given the inheritance of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who left the glory of being with his Father in heaven 
who became poor. Not just materially poor in this life and on this earth, but he became poor like the worst of sinners and suffered on the cross for us the wrath of God for our sins. And he did that so that by his poverty you might become rich. That's the grace of our Lord Jesus. That's what we're going to celebrate here this morning. I'd ask the uh, uh, men who are going to help serve to come forward. As I turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 11 and hear the instructions given to us regarding the table. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and sweet of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So we are to partake of uh, the, the bread, we are to partake of the cup, but we are to do so after examining ourselves. And what are we examining ourselves for? We are examining ourselves for our trust in the grace of God. Are we looking to the grace of God for our salvation? Are we putting our hope in Christ Jesus and the work that he has accomplished for our salvation? Have we turned away from trusting in our own works, from trusting in ourselves? Where is our hope found? Is it in Christ or is it in our wealth, our riches, our good works, our name, things that we have done? If you have examined yourself this morning and you confess before God, my only hope is Jesus. He is my life. He is my salvation. He is the one who has brought me to God. By his poverty, he has made me rich.